Hello, and welcome to This Week at Charlestown Road, a branch of the Heavenbound podcast. My name is Jason Harden. I'm here with Roger Schaus, and this is where we reflect on the weekend that was. We dig a little deeper into a recent sermon to give you something to think about as this week unfolds and preview what's to come this next weekend at Charlestown Road. We're glad to have all of our listeners with us today. Jason had the privilege and honor of preaching this past Sunday, and he's running a little series that mirrors our VBS. We had our VBS just a few weeks ago, and for the children's classes, our theme was the doors of the Bible. And so last week, Jason preached about the uh, ark door, and this past Sunday, he talked about the Passover door. And so what we want to do in this podcast is just kind of go back through and talk about that lesson, kind of stretch it just a little bit more. Passover is a major, major Old Testament event. It's something that carries over to the New Testament, and it really shadows much of what we understand about Jesus and even our relationship with him today. And so lots of things there to talk about that Passover door. And so, Jason, let's first of all give it back to you and let you kind of walk us through that sermon. Sure. Um, Israel had lived in Egypt for 430 years, according to Exodus 12. And the majority of that time, they had been slaves. God hears their cries. He comes to Moses. Moses has been hiding for 40 years in the wilderness. And God tells him at the age of 80, I want you to go back and I want you to deliver a message to Pharaoh. Let my people go. Of course, it is a famous element of this story that Pharaoh had a very hard heart and God sends plague after plague. Eventually, he promises the worst plague of all, the death of the firstborn. But the running thread of this little series of sermons we're doing is, even in the most terrifying, difficult of circumstances, God provided a door. And he told the children of Israel, I want you to kill a Passover lamb, one for each household. I want you to take blood from that lamb and smear it on the lintels, the top part of your door and on the door posts. And for those outside of those houses, it was going to be a just a terrible night. But on the inside, if you were in that house with the blood on the door, of course, the famous phrase is the Lord would see the blood on that door and pass over you. And it was to be, in many senses, a fresh beginning. God says, this is the beginning of a new year for you, the beginning of months. I want you to observe this once a year, every year, as a, a reminder of what I've done. And having walked through the basics of that story in our sermon, we just drew four basic connections. We drew the connection to Jesus in John chapter 13, what he was aware of as he instituted the Lord's Supper, of course, on the occasion of the observance of this same Passover centuries later with his apostles. He willingly laid down his life, the apostle Paul highlights, as our Passover lamb. It's significant. He, he's writing to Christians in the city of Corinth, many of whom undoubtedly had never observed a Passover in their life, but really significant that Paul says, listen, Jesus is 
our Passover lamb. You can overcome by the blood of this lamb, but you've got to apply it to your life in order to overcome sin and Satan and death. We ended on the note that, okay, those children of Israel weren't like the Egyptians around them. It would be plain to everybody who believed God's warnings and promises with bright red blood on the doorposts outside. And in the same way, we're not always going to be like the world, but this world is passing away. We need to be in Jesus in order to be safe and secure. That's such a great, great biblical lesson. I mean, I I just love the story of the Passover. It's just layered and layered with all kinds of uh, little mini themes and applications and just great for us. You know, we, we understand that most of the plagues were a direct assault upon the Egyptian gods. You know, they, they believed that the Nile was a god, so God turned it to blood. They believed in light, the sun, and God made the sun dark. And so, you know, you, you see all running through this, uh, the, the power of God. And the Egyptians were helpless, and they were at the mercy. One of the things that leads up to chapter 12 of Exodus, when we read about the Passover, is there are statements found where it says that God hardened the heart of Pharaoh. Right. One example is there in chapter 10, verse 20. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the sons of Israel go. Now, that that's always been just a difficult explanation to understand. Right. Because you'd think the purpose of all these plagues is to get Pharaoh kind of loosened up so he'll let the people go. But rather than that, it seems like he's getting harder and harder. And what does that mean? Well, that is a fantastic question. I mean, it is all over these chapters. Back in Exodus chapter 7, right before the first plague, God says to Moses and Aaron, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. And he goes on to describe what he is going to do next. Two things here uh, help me. Uh, one of them in Exodus chapter 9, if our listeners are, are uh, not driving a car or out on a lawnmower or something and want to turn a Bible back to Exodus 9, I'm going to read from there in just a second. But the first thing that helps me is to remember that God is outside of the scope of time. There isn't anything that sneaks up on God. There's not an unknown to God. As hard as it is for us to wrap our limited human minds around, I I know, Roger, you know what happened five minutes ago in this room. We have no idea what is going to happen five minutes from now. We have no idea what is going to be happening in the jungles of the Philippines five hours from now or the the Alps five years from now. And yet that is not God. God is. He is everywhere. He is all the time. He is in tomorrow, if you will, just as surely as he is today. And so for Mo- for God to tell Moses ahead of time what is going to happen is not a challenge for God, 
But it doesn't necessarily mean that Pharaoh does not have a choice in this matter, right? Pharaoh has free will in this whole occasion, I I believe. And the passage that helps me a little along those lines is in Exodus chapter 9, during the seventh plague, that terrible plague of hail. In verse 13, the Lord says to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present your Yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. Listen to this language. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Interestingly, that that verse is quoted by Paul in Romans chapter 9. But God continues in verse 17, you are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. He goes on to describe the hail that is going to come. And in verse 20, The narrator summarizes for us, Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses, but whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. God says, Pharaoh, I've lifted you up for a purpose. And, of course, Pharaoh does the exact opposite of these servants who feared the Lord. He leaves his slaves. He leaves his livestock out. He doesn't pay attention to the word of the Lord, and he suffers his uh, the consequences. Uh, Paul, in Romans chapter 9, goes back, and he, he revisits this, among other examples, and says, listen, God is able to raise up. God is able to humble. God is able to do what he choose, chooses. But it sure does seem to me all along the way, Pharaoh at any point could have said, enough, I repent in dust and ashes. He refuses to do so, and he suffers the consequences. And, and I also think we can't help but see the the type and the antitype of the coming Jesus. Yeah. I, I think you know that, and we're going to talk about that in just a minute. Why? Why the blood of Jesus was necessary to redeem us, but but that, that that's what this Passover is all about: blood on the door, and that's significant. That that would lead to that final point there, and how important that is. Yeah. Why do you think it says the death of the firstborn? You know, I. In, in my family, I happen to be second born, so I'm kind of happy about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm the first born, so. <laughs> so you're gone and I'm here. So, so why first born, you think? Yeah, well, from the standpoint of someone like Pharaoh, the first born would be the next ruler, right? The, the one on whom the future of Egypt would really rest. The first born was the son of potential and promise in many ways. And we know throughout the Old Testament, in our daily Bible reading, we've been reading from Second Chronicles. And what you find is one king dies and next king up is 
his firstborn son, right, over and over again. And so God is taking away Pharaoh's greatest potential for future success is the way I would put it. Absolutely. He's, he's changing the legacy here, and that's, yeah. just, that's just how he does that. Well, just a couple other things before we get some of these application points here. It is commonly believed and commonly thought, and oftentimes we just say this as if it, there's a verse that says that, but we're often talking about the death angel. Yeah. It was the death angel that came and went over those houses. What, what about that? Yeah, well, it's interesting. Throughout Exodus, on more than one occasion, you have interchangeability between God and some angelic being, but also God at times describing himself as being the one to do it. Throughout Exodus chapter 12, we read about this one who is going to come, uh, God says specifically in verse 12, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. We briefly referenced the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 28 in the sermon By faith, speaking of Moses, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. There's obviously a lot going on there. We know that angels are ministering servants sent by God to accomplish various things, but nowhere that I'm aware of do we read that that phrase, the death angel, as if um, you know, there is somehow a uh, one angel specifically charged with just going and and destroying everybody. It's a, a reminder that we need to be careful to describe things in the way the Bible describes. Yeah, we need to speak the language of the Bible. That you know, that's common in movies. You see this hooded, creepy fe- feature, and yeah. he he has this long sickle, and he's a he's the death angel. But that that just doesn't come from that story in that context. Why do you think from verse 12, it says that God would strike both man and beast? Yeah. Well, again, it would be a way of humbling Pharaoh, right? I, In many ways, after all of those plagues, it's hard for me to imagine there being all that many beasts left, right? But it is, you think about how devastating it was in the days of Job early on for him to lose not only uh, his sons and his daughters, but his livestock. It is his livelihood, right? But also we've got little reminders from Old to New Testaments. Romans 8 is a great example of this where creation is groaning under the weight of human sin. Creation around us at times suffers because of the foolishness of human beings who ought to know better. Yes, absolutely. Now, I really like how in verse 4 of chapter 12 of Exodus, it says, Now, if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them. Yeah. God's making provisions. He he would understand who could afford it, who could not afford it. And if you couldn't afford it, you may think, well, we're in trouble. You know, we can't, we can't afford this. But God was taking care of them. And God would know who in that household uh, especially when you come to the Egyptians, who was the firstborn, who wasn't. Sure. God saw those things, and I think that's a very, 
very powerful thing as we think about the concept of following what the Lord wants us to do. Nowhere do we ever read about someone being poor enough to diso or to to obey God. You think of Joseph and Mary at the birth of Jesus, they're too poor to bring a lamb. God had provided in the law the opportunity for two turtle doves, right? Absolutely. It's a matter of heart, not resources. Absolutely. So when we get to your connection points, you know, your first point was Jesus knew. Jesus knew what he was what he came to do. Right. He knew what uh God had before him. Why does it take blood to cleanse us? Yeah, well, again, this is a deep Old Testament idea, right? It goes all the way back, I would suggest, to the Garden of Eden where something presumably dies. God clothes Adam and Eve with skins, right, after their sin. And we don't know exactly where that came from, but it is in the very next chapter that we read about the offering of sacrifices. Abel offered a lamb as sacrifice to God. It is a deep, rich, long thread throughout the Old Testament. But maybe the best short summary is in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And if you want to learn more about how that connects to the work of Jesus, you need to read the book of Hebrews. But the shedding of blood and the forgiveness of sins is connected from Old to New Testament. Absolutely. And, and you know, uh, when Noah came out of the ark, God would say that there's life in the blood. Yeah. And so the shedding of that life is what's going to redeem us and be, be the satisfaction for the sins that we commit. So in Matthew 26, we, we have what's commonly called the Last Supper. And it's actually the Passover meal. Right. And so from that, what's the bridge to the Lord's Supper? Um, yeah. You know, you know, there's a lot of folks today who, who wouldn't see a problem with having just cake and milk for the Lord's <laughs> Supper or pizza and Coke. But uh, there, there, there's a direct connection from the Passover meal to the Lord's Supper meal. Right. Uh, we referenced it briefly. You can read all about that meal in Exodus chapter 12. There was unleavened bread. There was fruit of the vine. There was obviously the roasted lamb. There were bitter herbs. On and on we could go. And Jesus is observing that meal centuries later with his disciples on the night that he was betrayed. And they have that meal and Matthew you tells us in Matthew 26, 26, as they were eating, Jesus took bread. We know that it was unleavened bread from Exodus chapter 12. And after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. He goes on from there. But this was a meal from which Jesus took two elements, unleavened bread, fruit of the vine, and squarely takes their focus, I would suggest not just on this occasion, but for the rest of human history, off of simply the 
Passover and on to himself as the Lamb of God who truly takes away the sin of the world. Absolutely. Your, your fourth point about uh, how as we follow Jesus, we won't be like the world. Yeah. I, I can imagine an Egyptian living back in here in Exodus chapter 12, and we're, we're getting close to the close of the day. It's not there yet, but there's some Israelites, and they're putting blood up around their door. And how the Egyptian must have thought, that is so dumb looking. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's not even paint. You're using blood. And, and why? And, and, but when, when God came through and was instituting this plague, God saw those who had the blood, those who didn't. Right. And everyone walked down the streets could recognize it. Well, that door has it. That door doesn't have it. What are some visible signs today as disciples of Jesus yeah. that makes us stand out? Well, I mean, certainly it is going to begin just with our behavior. That goes back to the Sermon on the Mount, right? Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. And so in a world gone bad, we need to be lights for good. In a, a world of corrupt speech, we need to have speech that builds up in a a world that is just consumed, addicted, I would suggest, to tearing each other down. We need to make sure what we're doing to the best of our ability is, is building people up. It's what Peter talked about in 1 Peter 3, verse 15. You, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. You be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you with gentleness and respect. If an Egyptian came up and asked what an Israelite was doing, they needed to tell them, right? And in fact, we know from later chapters in Exodus, there were Egyptians that left with the children of Israel from that land, right? And um, same sort of thing for Christians. If an unbeliever comes and asks us, why are you different? Why do you seem to have hope and joy and peace that the circumstances around you just can't shatter? What an incredible opportunity to tell them about the Lord who has changed our lives and is making us different, distinct from and, the world. And that's how we become the light of the world. Yeah. Uh, Paul would say in Second Corinthians 5, verse 9, we make it our ambition to please the Lord. So in our modesty, our attitudes, our words, our behavior, we don't follow what culture does. We follow Jesus Christ. And it will be different. People will notice it's like having blood above the door, but that's okay because we follow Jesus. And that's the direction we need to go. So this is Wednesday, and here at Charlestown Road, we are having our summer series. And our summer series this year is based on the hymn, Higher Ground. And we've invited for our speaker this night is Chuck Durham. He's from Fayetteville, Arkansas. And he's going to take that expression from that hymn, Lord, Lead Me On. And so we encourage all of our listeners, if you're in our area, to drop in, be with us. If you're not from our area, this will be live cast, and it will be also on our uh, website after the lessons are over. But again, this great hymn, we're walking through it here in July and August, thinking about that higher ground that God has presented for us. And then this Sunday, I'm going to be preaching, and I'm going to be talking Sunday morning about the people of God. 
and how we should treat one another. It's going to be a little spinoff from Matthew chapter 16, a little conversation Jesus has with Peter, and it's going to help us, again, to remind ourselves, like the people of Egypt, that we're different than the world, and we need to act that way, how important those things are. Roger, thanks for joining me today. Thanks to all of you for listening to this week at Charlestown Road. We would love to see you at 7 o'clock p.m. tonight. We're already looking forward to Sunday, the best day of the week. We would love to have you come and grow with us.